Well, such a joy to be with you today. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16 is our passage. Has it ever occurred to you that discontentment and worship are inversely proportional? Let me say that again so your minds can get around this idea. Discontentment and worship are inversely proportional. What does inversely proportional mean, Pastor John? It means where there's more of one, there's less of the other. The more you worship God for His glorious grace, the less you are discontented. The more you are discontent, the less you are worshiping God for His glorious grace. This is because the very definition of discontentment is taking your eyes off God, it's replacing your worship of God as the prime directive of your life and focusing on something else. Really, it is, even if in a a small way, worshiping something else. It is idolatry. In fact, that's precisely what Colossians 3 verse 5 says, that covetousness is the sin of idolatry. It's the opposite of the worship of God. If you are discontent about your belongings, your home, your car, your stuff, it is because you do not worship God, you worship those things. You believe your joy and your happiness is bound up in those things. If you are discontented with your wife or your husband or your children, it is because you idolize some fairy tale picture of those people, usually impossible fairy tale rather than God. If you're discontent about your job or your money, it is because you worship not God, but job and money. On the other hand, if you're obsessed with glorifying God, you will find contentment and joy no matter what your circumstances are. Poverty, not a problem, because you find joy in Christ. Bad marriage, sad, it's a tearjerker, it hurts, it's heart-wrenching, but in the end, your joy is in Christ, so you can do all things through Him who strengthens you. Bad health, you're knocking on death's door, you find joy even through those tears and that pain because you do not worship those things, you worship and praise God for His glorious grace. The only thing He did for you was to die and rise and save your soul. That is enough, and you'll glorify Him eternally for that. Now, this is a simple truth, a truth we should live by. I would say it's something that we should think about every single day, because every single day we are assaulted, are we not? We are assaulted by ideas of discontentment, with this temptation to worship something else other than God. You turn on the television, you open up your laptop, you watch the news, you, talk, you walk into a store, the world is shouting at you, your life is not fulfilled unless you have this product. People do this even on social media. They depict their lives as being fairytale perfect, and other people then get on and look at this and imagine, maybe my life could be like that one day. They look on jealously or covetously, discontent in their own lives. Now, when you become a Christian, you're filled with this amazing joy, incomprehensible joy. Your whole life focus is now set straight. You're now obsessed with the God of the universe and His Son, Jesus Christ. You're worshiping Him. Nothing could be better. When that happens, you're joyfully content. Are you now permanently free from The temptation of discontentment? No way. Your spirit's redeemed, but your body is not. Moreover, this world is not, and so it provides for you, again, these temptations. You're surrounded by these things every single day. So, 
Graciously knowing this, Jesus teaches his disciples and subsequently us about discontentment. He tells us that our joy and satisfaction in his kingdom can be found in the worship of his son, Jesus Christ. We find joy in thinking about the grace, the grace of our master, Jesus, the grace of God, the, the kindness of the Holy Spirit. He's going to teach us to fix our eyes on him, not the world, and worship him rather than things of the world. The more you do that, the less you will be discontented with this life. Conversely, if you're looking at others, if you're looking, about, looking at what they have, if you're looking at their stuff, if you're looking at circumstances, you're not worshiping God for His grace, and you suddenly find you're a very unhappy person. That's the inverse relationship between worship and discontentment. And this is the story that Jesus gives today in a parable, a parable about kingdom contentment. It is directly tied to what Jesus had been saying at the end of chapter 19, that we come to him as a child, totally dependent on him, totally finding our worship in him, willing to give up everything to him because we do not rely on our merits. We deny ourselves. And how does denying yourself plan a life? Well, for one, it is pursuing a life of worship rather than discontentment. You deny yourself the worship of earthly satisfaction for the one thing that truly satisfies Christ himself. We fix your eyes on him and you find joy. So let me read this parable to you. I want to show you how this parable calls us to focus on God, focus on worshiping Him as the remedy for discontentment. Let me read beginning in verse 1. It goes down to verse 16. Follow along as I read aloud. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning and to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, denarius a day he sent them into his vineyard Going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, and he, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And he said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, go, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the Word of God. What we have before us is a pretty common picture. In fact, it still happens today, even in America, especially in farming communities, agrarian areas where there's lots of farming and manual labor. You've seen this before, if not in real life. You've seen it in, uh, on movies and television. 
There's a part of town where the jobless gather. No, not the welfare office. They gather where they can be hired for at least a day. A place where they can get a job for the day. It, it was the harvest season. That's the picture here. So there was always need for these workers, and these workers knew where to gather in the marketplace. And vineyard owners and other masters would come and hire laborers to work in their vineyards to pick grapes. They agreed at the start to a wage and to go into that vineyard and work that day for the agreed amount. The harvest must have been plentiful in this parable because the vineyard owner came back to pick up more workers again and again. Came back at nine, that means that's what it means the third hour, third hour after sunrise, noon, three, and this an hour or so before sunset, probably 5 p.m. or so. He paid all the workers the same. That was the agreed wage, a daily wage, one denarius, a typical day wage for laborers in that era. However, as the ones who'd been there all day watched this happen, they grew more and more discontent. And I think we can all identify with this, right? You, you probably have, if you work, you probably, in a, in a setting where there's other people working with you, you, you have probably people who make more money or make the same as you and work less. It can be quite frustrating, right? See someone who's kind of lazy, who doesn't produce, and yet they get the same wage or perhaps even more, and it's quite frustrating. I think this is why Jesus uses this illustration, because it's pretty common to all of us. We understand this. We're frustrated with the laborers who came early in the morning, aren't we? We, we kind of feel this, like, yeah, that, that's not fair. That doesn't make any sense. These people don't get paid as much, and they work the whole day, whereas these other guys who work for one hour get the same pay. That's just not fair. That's not right. The ones who came early ought to get paid a little more. What we have here is a begrudging attitude. Do you begrudge my generosity? The master asked. Well, we don't say begrudge a lot, but you get the idea. They were frustrated. They didn't like this. It seemed unfair. Like I said, they'd been there all day, worked more through the heat of the day, got paid the same. Now, the master's words here are the key to unlocking this parable. It's how we understand what's happening in this parable. The master points out his, first of all, his generosity. He points out his goodness. That's really the word there, goodness. You could say loving kindness. You could even say grace. He points out his grace. He gave all of them, even the ones there at first, what they did not deserve, a job, a way to earn wages, work. And had they focused their attention on the master's magnanimity, his grace, his generosity, nothing but gratitude and praise would have come off their lips. But instead, they were looking around at each other, comparing their pocketbooks, getting jealous. So this gives us the key to our own contentment, doesn't it? It teaches us that our contentment is not found by comparing ourselves with others or some imaginary standard we think we have met or deserve. We will never find contentment that way. Rather, contentment is found by focusing on the goodness, the grace of the Master. And so that's the key to understanding this whole parable. Let's do what the workers should have done. Let's look at this master, observe the master in this situation, and let's note some characteristics of this master so that we too can become contented rather than discontented. If you're taking notes, praise God for the following. What divine attribute can you dwell on to introduce contentment in your life? Number one, God's inclusive grace. 
God's inclusive grace. Look at there, look there at the action of the master. What's the master doing? What, what should those laborers have thought of as they considered their own life? This master comes and first he has the kindness just to come and offer jobs. He could have gone to a different marketplace. He could have gone somewhere else. He could have made his own current servants do that job. Verse 2, he sends them into his vineyard. He graciously gives to them in the form of a job. He does this again in verse 3, about 9 a.m. At noon, he does it again. Same thing, offers jobs, offers money, paying jobs. Then at 3 p.m. again, and then again at 5. Giving, giving, giving. And all of them receive exactly what they desire, a job and pay. The master is doing this, all this giving. It's almost as if this master wants to make sure that everybody gets the message, there is work available. There is here what your heart longs for. It's almost as if he wants every person in that market to have a job that day. I'm sure uh, many of you were like me in your first earliest jobs, right? You worked somewhere, anywhere, you'd just take a job, right? Whatever they gave to you, you had no resume, you had no job experience, no credentials, no technical skills, you had nothing. In my day, living in the suburbs of a large city, what do you do? Well, you go to the mall, and you go to each store, and you ask for an application. You go around the mall, you make your way around the mall, you get 30 or 40 applications, you go home that night, you fill them all out, the next morning you get up, and you go, and you give them back to all the people, and you hope that at least one of these stores will call you. Eventually, one store out of 40 actually calls you back. They say, we need someone to break down boxes, clean up the stock area, and clean the toilets. You say, I can be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> You're just happy you got a job. You're just grateful someone hired you. You had nothing to offer. You're just grateful you got hired. You know, as pastors, this is sort of happens early in ministry. You get through seminary, and you got nothing. They're, you don't have experience. And here are these churches asking a young man to, to lead them. All of them are older than you. And so even if a church of, of 15 people calls you, this is what happened to me, 15 people called me. Would you like to come be our pastor? When do I start? I don't care about the church. I don't care about the pay, nothing. Just, I just want a job. I'm just grateful that someone would take a chance on me and let me work. I'll be there this Sunday. That's where these day laborers are. They don't have any real skills. They don't have a job. They don't have experience. They don't have any kind of income. They don't have references. They don't have sort of technical abilities. This is a, a laborer's job, a, a physical laborer's job. And this gracious master comes to this group of nobodies again and again and again and again. Like I said, it's almost as if he wants to make sure everyone hears the offer to join his merry group of grape pickers. You could say he was providing all these opportunities with this announcement, whosoever will may come. This is what is called the free offer of the gospel. The Reformers and the next generation of Reformed Protestants made sure all of their confessions talked about this gracious, inclusive, free offer of the gospel. You read about this in the Canons of Dort. They wanted to make sure that Though they fully affirm the sovereignty of God and God's sovereign election, it does not mean that you preach the gospel with your fingers crossed. It does not mean you only preach to those whom you think perhaps might be the elect. No, you make a free offer to all who would come. 
You say, whoever believes in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, will be saved. Those early reformers, the Calvinists, they preached and taught, whosoever will may come. Yes, they believed in election. Yes, they believed in the limited atonement. But they believed in a well-meant offer, a free offer of the gospel. They did not believe that someone would be told after having faith in Christ, sorry, you're not, you're not one on the list here. No matter if you repented and, and, and believed, sorry. No, anybody who would repent would be on that list because of God's sovereign grace. You see this in their preaching. You see this in their mission work. You see this articulated in the early statements of faith, the London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, all those ones that came after, even our own declaration of uh, uh, faith talks about this free offer of grace. And then you see it in their actions of evangelizing, planting churches. In fact, the founder of the modern missions movement, William Carey, was an avowed Calvinist, but he certainly affirmed what Calvin did about the free offer of the gospel. He went and he wanted to tell everybody he could possibly tell about the gospel of Christ. Whosoever will may come. Now, the reason I bring this up, you guys know me, I'm not real big and I don't talk about Calvinism and stuff like that very much, but I really focus, I want you guys to believe the Bible. I feel it's important you know this because about once a year someone comes to me and says, oh, because you believe in election, well, that must mean you don't believe in evangelism. You don't believe in the free offer of grace. No, yes, we do. And it's not because some reformer believed it. It's because the Bible teaches it. It clearly shows us a master who makes this free offer and continues to preach the gospel, so to speak, calling all who would come to come into his kingdom. Every Sunday, I make this free offer, whosoever will, have faith, repent. I, I begin with my prayer with a gospel presentation. Es essentially, almost every time I pray at the beginning of my sermon, I'm making a gospel presentation throughout the sermon. Sometimes I make this gospel presentation, especially toward the end, I make this gospel presentation. And then, again, when I pray, I pray that those people who are willing would come. In this passage, I believe God is presented, the Master is presented, making this inclusive offer. Anyone who could come who would come, can come. The Master is demonstrating an inclusive grace. He's going back again and again, providing chance after chance for whosoever will to come. That's not to say that God offers everybody the exact same number of opportunities or type of opportunities, but it's to say that God's kindness and love compels him to make this gracious offer. Paul stands up in a very sophisticated, ethnically diverse Areopagus on Mars Hill, God commands everyone everywhere to repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I would be remiss even right now to not acknowledge that there are some of you who have not ever responded to that offer. Maybe God, through even this very moment in my sermon, maybe God is speaking to your heart and he's calling you to join his merry band of grape pickers, to be a part of the kingdom to have faith in Christ, to repent of your sin, and turn to Him. Now, back to the point of this message, the more you dwell on this, the more you think about this inclusive offer, the more you see this free offer, the more you contemplate God's grace in your own life and, and how that offer was made known to you over and over again, the more you will find contentment and the less you will find yourself to be discontented. What's another attribute of God or God's grace that you can praise Him to cure your discontentment, number two, God's 
sovereign grace. Now, this is toward the end of our passage, but I thought it was a good parallel or to be right next to this idea of God's inclusive grace. You see this as you read toward the end of the the passage, you get down to, to 15, this idea that God has the right to save whom He will save. We want to believe, oftentimes we want to believe that humans control God, that humans control salvation, that God just sort of sits up there in heaven and hopes that humans will actually do something, and His whole plan is sort of hinging on whether or not individuals respond, and He just sort of hopes that someone will do something. No, God has to do something in their hearts first. Paul pointed this out in Romans 9. Yes, whosoever will may come. Yes, if you believe, if you have genuine faith, you will be saved. Yes, we must choose whom we will serve, choose this day whom we will serve. But we must recognize that it is God in us, both willing and working, there is good pleasure. It is the Spirit of God who has grant us the desire to come to Christ, it must change our will and give us a desire to respond to that call. So, in the end, God gets all the glory. Think about it. If you reject this idea of God's sovereign grace, ultimately what you believe is that the people who go to heaven are just a little bit better, make better decisions, are a little more spiritual than everybody else. No way. It's God and all God. If you're saved, it is not detached from God's will. It is flowing out of God's sovereign will. So, in Romans 9, Paul is teaching this about God's sovereign grace. He's choosing people whom He will rescue and save, and He animates uh, them to respond. The Holy Spirit animates people to respond to the free offer of the gospel, carries them all the way to the end. For God to be truly God, He must have that sovereign will. It can't be synergism, you know, people working with God to save themselves. It has to be monergism, God alone saves. Paul's teaching this in Romans 9. He anticipates that someone will say at this point, hey, that's not fair. That just doesn't sound fair to me. It just doesn't sound like, you know, he's got to give us the choice. It's got to be up to us, not him, ultimately. It just doesn't seem to be fair. How is anyone guilty if God hadn't chosen them? Paul answers, Romans 9, 14 to 16, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who's on, who has mercy. Now, every single commentary that I read about our Matthew passage pointed this passage out. It sounds almost identical to what we have in verse 15. We'll look up in verse 13 first. He replied to one of them, this is the master speaking, "'Friend, I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius?' Take what belongs to you and go. I choose, to give, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Here it is, verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Ladies and gentlemen, we don't stand in judgment of God. We don't have a greater sense of fairness or justice or righteousness than God, as though His sovereign plan has to meet our very high and lofty requirements. We simply worship Him, and we praise Him. He is graciously sovereign. We don't know how the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility to respond to the free offer, how it all works together, that is an enigma to us. We don't understand this. 
It is something we can't wrap our minds around. Every effort to do so has led people down some very dangerous paths of doctrine and theology. We believe in the free offer of grace, but at the same time, we acknowledge God is indeed sovereign. If God saved me, yes, I chose Him, but it's because He first chose me. And for that grace, for that sovereign grace, I worship God. Had it not been for God changing me first, I wouldn't have chosen Him. And so you look at your own life and you praise God, Lord, I could, I, I'm not any better than anyone else on this earth. I'm just as sinful. I'm just as far from you. It doesn't matter how Christian my family was. I could have not been saved. And yet, for whatever reason, you moved in me. You changed my heart. And for that, I give you all the glory. I'm not worried about all these other people. I'm not worried about your election. I could never know who you've elected. That's your sovereign plan. It's a secret plan. But I know one thing. You saved me. And it was entirely by your grace. In uh, C.S. Lewis' book, The Horse and His Boy, the uh, protagonist, the, the young boy who's sort of the subject of the book, is named Shasta, and he's a little bit frustrated that Aslan, it's, a, it's an lion who represents Christ, is treating his friend, Erebus, in a way that he, he would not expect, and he's sort of frustrated about it. And Aslan says to Shasta, child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. In a broad way, he's saying what Jesus is saying here. You don't know God's sovereign plan in others' lives. You don't know whether God's justice is being met. You don't understand, but all you do know is your story. Ultimately, all you really understand is that God has shed His grace on you. You don't understand what they've gone through, what's happened in their lives, why they're receiving more for less or whatever. You don't understand any of that. All you know is that because of God's sovereign plan, for whatever reason that you could never understand, He has saved you. He brought you in His kingdom by no merit of your own. Praise Him for it, and you will find more and more contentment. What's another divine attribute that will help us find contentment? God's just grace. God's just grace. R.C. Sproul pointed out in this passage and elsewhere There is only justice and grace with God. There is no injustice with God. His kindness to those who came late is not an injustice to those who came earlier. It's not wrong. What is it? It is God's grace. The master was not unjust to anyone in this parable. The the master was absolutely perfect to everyone in this parable and gave everyone an amount of grace, amount of blessing by giving them a job. The ones who worked all day toiling the sun, they received exactly what was promised. That was righteous. That was justice. That was even grace because he gave them a job in the first place. Where those laborers went wrong is they presumed that the master owed them something. You owe me more for what I've been through. Again, taking their eyes off the grace and kindness of God, they looked around at others and they declared in their hearts that God is unjust. An injustice has happened. I shouldn't be treated this way. That's really the heart of every time we complain, isn't it? At the very heart of it, when we are discontent with life, that is, that is our accusation at God. You are unjust. I shouldn't have to deal with this. 
sometimes parents say this, and it's like fingernails on a chalkboard, and I, I, I admit, I think I've said it a couple times, but it is like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. They, their kids do something, and they say something like this, see what I have to deal with? Like, you didn't deserve that kid. Truth is, you're probably worse than that kid. No, it's by God's grace. God owes us nothing. R.C. Sproul goes on to say, if there's any sentiment that has no place in the Christian heart, it is the sentiment that God owes us something. He owes us nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, the only thing God really owes us is damnation. And if you find yourself discontent with life, discontent with your money, discontent with your job, your house, your family, it's because you truly believe that God is unjust. He's done something wrong. He's treating you worse than you deserve. My advice is to meditate on this passage. Meditate on passages. I wrote down Romans 3, 21 to 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what I mean by God's grace is a just grace is that God did not fail in terms of justice, nor did He fail in terms of grace. He did not pull back on His justice in order to give someone grace, and neither did He pull back on grace to give someone justice. His justice and His grace, and all, like all divine character, was operating at 100%. There was absolute holiness in God from beginning to end, and there still is. There's not a moment that God is not perfectly just and not perfectly grace, gracious. And as you evaluate your life, you praise God for His holiness in this respect, that He is just, that He is gracious, He is righteous, that His justice, even in terms of the grace that He gave you to be saved, His justice was still met. It was met by pouring out His wrath on Jesus on the cross. In Romans 3, it goes on, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, one more contentment-inducing attribute of God, and we're done. Number four, God's personal grace. Now, we've reflected on the fact that all of these things are eminently personal. They, they are very, very close to your heart. God's sovereign grace to save you, it's definitely close to your heart. You don't have any grounds to judge God's kindness. It's a just grace. His call to repent, all of this is very personal to you, this free offer. And here Jesus repeats that lesson that He mentioned last time there in verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. In other words, here's how you live this out. I mean, you worship God, you praise Him on your, with your lips, but here's how you praise Him with your life. Here's how you worship God with your life. You're so full of gratitude for all the grace. Here's how you personally are to carry this out. You put yourself last. You take all this gracious activity that God has displayed on you and you translate it into how you treat others. 
Yes, it is how you bless God and worship God, but it's also how you work with and deal with others. Stand at the end of the line. Open doors for others. Show kindness to those living in the shadows. Don't ever think or portray that your time has come and you deserve something, that God owes you one. I'll close with a sad story. There's a man that I've known since childhood. He's a very wealthy man, owner of a large company, a very godly man. For decades, I've known him to be faithful. I've known him to be uh, someone who faithfully sacrifices for the kingdom. He's done great things, led many people to Jesus Christ. I asked him one time, he'd been a Christian for some 40 years, and I asked him one time, he's talking about reading his Bible, and he admitted that, uh, I humbly admitted, not in a prideful way, but he admitted that not one day in his Christian life had he ever missed reading the Bible. There are not many pastors, or any pastors can actually say that. This man read the Bible every day, faithful man, godly man, sacrificing for his wife, his children, his church. A couple of years ago, though, his wife passed away, and what entered his thinking, and it was very mild at first, was a discontentment about what had happened. He didn't say much again, but he just mildly suggested this idea that he's struggling with this idea, I've been faithful all my life, and now, God, you take my wife away from me? Looked around at others, even lost people, and noticed all the quote-unquote fun they were having with their wives still alive. And he began to grow more and more discontent. And this is a slippery slope. Discontentment only breeds more discontentment. And the more discontented this man became, the more he's withdrawn from those who would influence him. He's withdrawn from church. He's withdrawn from people. He's reduced his faithfulness in terms of righteousness and pursuit of holiness. He's completely stopped trying to bless others, his family, his church. He sought to bless some girlfriend he now has and fulfill his desires with her, purchasing all these things. It's so bad now, I have to come to the conclusion that at least based on his works right now, he never was truly a believer. How could someone know the grace of God and do this and grow so discontented and angry and frustrated and accusing God of some great injustice? How could someone who really knows the grace of God do that? This man who used to be a paragon of faithfulness is a parable of discontentment now. With all that money, with all that stuff, with all the not restraining his fleshly desires and pursuit of all these things, he's one of the most unhappy people I know right now. Don't become that man. Worship is your way out of discontentment. Look to the grace of the Master and praise Him for His glorious grace. Let's pray that we would do that. Father, we thank You so much for today. Thank you for what you've given us, and Lord, may we be always grateful. May we never, ever have this idea that somehow you've been unjust to us, that you've wronged us because of circumstances or the things that we have. I pray that you'd bless us with the desire to find our joy and contentment in you. Lord, again, we pray for those who may not know you, that they would realize true contentment, true joy is found in Jesus Christ alone. Help them know this even today.
Grant them a desire to repent of their sins and follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.